Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. As always, I'm so grateful to have you here. With so much focus on the holidays right now, there's been very little coverage about a federal trial that, believe it or not, could really shape how Americans fly in the coming years, how they fly, what carriers they use, and most importantly, I think, how much they're going to pay. We're going to have expert Bill McGee on to discuss that. And then after Bill, I'm so pleased to be able to welcome Nikki Vargas to the show. She is an editor with a competing publication. I'll say what it is, Fodor's. But she also wrote a terrific new travel memoir. That's what we're discussing today. It's called Call You When I Arrive. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun read. So without further ado, here's this week's Fromer's Travel Show. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show, Bill McGee, and I'm proud to say that you are now a Fromer's columnist. We're so excited to have you on board. And I am equally excited. Thank you so much, Pauline. It's a thrill to be working with you, and it's always a pleasure to talk. Yeah, and your first article is a Lollapalooza because we are living in history-making times. As we're speaking right now, the closing arguments in a big trial are happening, a trial that you cover in your article. Tell our listeners about that. Sure. As you know, uh, JetBlue and Spirit are trying to merge and um, the Department of Justice has sued them uh, in a federal courtroom in Boston right now. They're having closing arguments where we're crossing our fingers and everything we can cross that it goes (laughs) the right way. But uh, Well, I got to say before uh, you go on, This will be aired several days after we spoke. The answer to where the judge goes on this won't be out by then, right? No, no. Um, If history is any judge, it'll it'll be weeks, if not months, you know, but we'll see. But yeah, yeah. So we are in another cycle of consolidation and they do come in cycles. You know, they they really do. This is very much a, uh, a copycat industry. Uh, you know, over the years, I've sort of been in the front lines of a lot of this consolidation and fighting against it currently at American Economic Liberties Project and at other organizations and, you know, testifying in Congress. And the bottom line is that, you know, when there is any kind of movement or potential movement in market share rankings, everybody panics. Um, so don't let anybody tell you that airline executives are not concerned about size. They are focused and absolutely obsessed with size size of market share. That's all they seem to care about at times. And so if JetBlue and Spirit were to go through, which we hope doesn't happen, that would make JetBlue the fifth largest airline in the country. And Alaska, which is currently the fifth largest, said, well, we can't have that. Now they're trying to merge with Hawaiian, two very, very different cultures, as, (laughs) as their names make clear. But all of this consolidation, Pauline, it's just so harmful. I mean, we, you know, I really have to provide some context, I think. We are, this is not hyperbole. We are in a place we simply have never been before hmm. in terms of concentration. I've done, the, I've done the math. I've done the research. We have not had so few airlines in the United States since the 19 teens. Wow. Since the industry started more than 100 years ago before World War I. 
And uh, we've never had such concentration at the top, the big four, American Delta, United and Southwest, 80% of the market. And we've never had such a long dry spell without new airlines. We just went 14 years from 2007 to 2021 without a single new entrant. That's never happened right. in, in U.S. airline history. Well, and I think so, probably sometimes when we talk about these things, people tune out. They think, oh, inside baseball, who cares who controls it? It's not going to affect me. But wow, is this affecting travelers and not just travelers, but entire industries in at regions of the country. This is a massive issue, right? Exactly. Um, we have focused at, at at Economic Liberties, we've focused on something called regional inequality. And um, with the airline industry, it's sort of the poster child for everything that's wrong about regional inequality. You know, as, as you well know, much of the media that covers the industry is based in New York or Washington. And that's, that's a bit of an anomaly because there's, there's more choice in those places. But in much of the country, you have no choice. And I will say to you, I mean, you know. No choice uh, for I mean, flying. So yes, you, at right, your exactly. airport, you have one carrier. And you either, or two maybe, and you either pay what they want or you end up driving. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or you don't go at all. Right. right. You know, I, I laugh when I see a New York-based reporter say something like, oh, Delta changed their frequent flyer program. You should drop Delta and go with someone else. Say that to somebody in Georgia. Huh. Okay. Good luck with that. Yeah. Okay. Good luck <laughs> flying, flying, you know, flying an airline other than, than Delta. And that is much of the country. And the fact is, this is a, you know, I called it in the column, one of the dirty little secrets of the industry. The big three, they stopped competing with each other on price effectively about 20 years ago. It's, it's been, I think, a very underreported development. So if, and, and how do I know this? This isn't Bill McGee's opinion. This is documented every quarter by the Department of Transportation when they put out their quarterly airfare reports. You see that on routes where it's just American, Delta, United, or any combination of the three, any of the two, or all three, or just one of them, that's where the highest fares in the country are. I mean, boom, mic drop, that's it, you know? And then where do you see the lowest fares? Where carriers like Spirit and Frontier and Allegiant are. Now, I understand not everybody wants to fly Spirit, but this is, you know, you, you raised a great point by saying a lot of people sort of, you know, they think, well, this doesn't affect me. It does affect you because, you know, I was just telling a friend recently, he lives in Florida part of the time, and he goes back and forth from New York to Florida. And when I told him I was at the Spirit trial in Boston, he said, oh, I don't care about Spirit. I'm never going to fly Spirit. Right. And I said, well, you should care. I said, who do you fly to Florida? He said, Delta. I said, well, if Spirit goes away and takes all of its lowest fares with it, you will be paying more on Delta or American United or any other airline. And JetBlue will certainly be charging more. And, the, you know, and then, you know, he's a smart guy and it hit him and he said, oh, you know, I said, you don't have to fly on an airline to benefit from its presence. So for those that think that, well, I'm, you know, spirit doesn't affect me, it does affect you. They are the largest ultra low cost carrier in the country and they offer the lowest fares. So if they go away, the fares go with them. Yeah. And there's a bigger issue, an issue beyond travel. If people can't get to a city easily, the economy there suffers. And with this consolidation, certain regions and big cities, as you mentioned in the article, are getting left in the dust. They just don't have the coverage that they had maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and that is going to hurt their economies. No question. And we have seen it time and time again. And this is the part, you know, I, I really feel like we're in Groundhog Day at times, that we just keep making the same mistakes. So last year, the very first thing I did when I joined Economic Liberties about 18 months ago, they asked me to, to file comments with the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission on airline mergers. 
And I recommended, and, and we did, we said there should be a moratorium on all mergers until someone in the government, the, gov- the government accountability office, someone goes back and, and measures the harms that we've already seen. And you're so right, Pauline. You know, when you talk about regional inequality, I think a lot of people think of, you know, Montana, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota. And that's very true. Rural and smaller communities, they are hardest hit. But what if I said Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, St. Louis, you know, cities that have major league baseball teams, but they no longer have an airline hub. Why? Because of mergers. And I sat in in Congress and, you know, you, you have to stop short of calling it perjury, but I just remember shaking my head where airline executives said, well, Senator, we have, no, we have no plans at this time to close any hubs. Everyone knew they were going to close hubs. They always do that. And that's what consolidation is all about. So you have cities that large, St. Louis, yeah. that have been so dramatically hit. And, and no one's really gone back and quantified it. So even if you don't fly, you could, you could take the train everywhere. Your city is affected. Corporations pick up and move if there's no hub. Yeah. They're not going to have their sales force take four flights a day if they can take two and be on, you know, being. Chicago O'Hare all day or Dallas-Fort Worth. So there's a lot of work we need to do just to measure it. So in the meantime, we're saying, let's stop the bleeding. You know, first things first, let's stop the bleeding. Let's stop all these mergers, quantify the harms, and then we can talk about fixing the industry. But you said a moment ago that this is like Groundhog Day. This keeps happening and happening. But Andy McDowell has appeared on the scene and her love is shining forth because uh, we are now seeing the Biden administration taking this seriously and and fighting against this. And this is the first time that even uh, that a Democratic or a Republican administration has gotten involved in all at all, really, in about 20 years. Right. Uh, longer, longer, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back 40 to the Reagan administration. Wow. You know, you, you know, as well as I do that in Washington, everything gets politicized. Right. So if Biden is in office, those that don't like him will say, well, this is Biden's fault and Trump's in office. So, you know, it's Trump's fault. I, I try to be very fair about these things. You know, I have my own political beliefs, of course, but I try and be very fair. And I point out, look, if you want to spread blame, there's enough blame to go back about eight presidents. OK. And plenty of Democrats, plenty of Republicans. The DOJ has been off duty for 40 years when it comes to airline mergers. They have put up very token, you know, protests and, well, give up a few slots in Washington National and we'll rubber stamp it. And that's what they did. They had a big rubber stamp. The Biden administration, in my view, deserves tremendous credit. They are the first administration in which the DOJ is going back to its roots. And by the way, you know, there's a lot of claims, oh, they're, they're, they're overstepping their authority. They're not. They're using authority that was dormant for about 40 years. The authority has been there all along, go, going back into, into 100 years ago with some of the legislation that's been passed. So the DOJ is now stepping up. And, you know, when they filed suit, I thought, wow, this is something I've never seen in my lifetime. And I've been around the industry since 1985. Yeah. And then what happened? Later that day, um, there is Secretary Pete Buttigieg from the DOT, and he was on MSNBC or, or one of the channels and saying, uh, the DOT is also opposed to this merger. And I almost fell over. I thought, well, this I've never seen. The DOT has been virtually silent on mergers going back to the 1980s. So we are in a different era. And um, it's really, it, it couldn't come soon enough. So um, much credit to the DOJ for taking this on. Well, much credit for them to take it on. But you were in that courtroom. Are they doing so effectively? Are they going to win this case, do you think? And then that will that then affect the uh, proposal of Alaska to buy Hawaiian Airlines? 
I do think there's a connection. We'll see, you know, we'll see uh, what the mood is. Um, hopefully there will be a victory here and the DOJ will win with, um, with uh, JetBlue and Spirit. Uh, but yes, I was there on, on opening day in, in, in Hall- on Halloween and, and for a few days after that. And I, I can tell you that, you know, first of all, just to be clear, this is not a jury trial. The judge, you know, will make the decision. And this exact same courthouse, not, court, not the same judge, but the same courthouse, the federal court in Boston, earlier this year handed down a ruling in favor of the DOJ against what airline? Yeah, JetBlue again. JetBlue and American. It was something called the Northeast Alliance. It fell short of a merger, but it effectively was a merger in, in some key ways. Um, you know, JetBlue, if, if JetBlue was a friend, if it was a person, not a corporation, I think I would call them and say, let's go to a bar and have a beer and talk because you are all over the place. Like, what is it that you want in life? You know, <laughs> uh, I would sit them down and say, you know, uh, you, you're dating two different people at once and they're very <laughs> different. What is it? You know, really, who is JetBlue these days? I mean, how do you say that you want to merge with the, the nation's largest ultra low cost carrier? We all know about Spirit. You know, everything is fee based, but they also offer the lowest fares there are, but bare bones service. We know that. Yep. And then at the same time, say, we're also aligned with American Airlines, you know, one of the three largest network airlines with, you know, the lounges and the first class and all the rest of it. Like, who are you? What do you want? Well, what do they, what do they want? They want market share. And this is, you know, there's so much rhetoric and so much false information out there about this. This is always about size. It's always about consolidation. And then what, what happens when you get the consolidation? Fares go up and you start acting like a monopoly. And that's what we have. We have an oligopoly with the big four. So can I predict what, what Judge Young will do in Boston? I can't, but I'm very uh, encouraged by the line of questioning this morning. He's putting some tough questions to, to JetBlue. Okay. And he also, the thing that I was very happy to hear this morning is that um, he sort of cut through one of JetBlue's false arguments. They keep saying, well, we're only, you know, combined, we're only about 9% market share. The big guys have 80. We're not that big. With the airlines, you can't look at market share on a national level. It, you know, they, JetBlue keeps comparing themselves to Coke and Pepsi and saying, we're not Coke and Pepsi. Well, you are Coke and Pepsi on certain routes, okay? That's the key. You have to take the airlines route by route. Um, there's no airport in the country that has every airline in the United States operating. Yeah. But, you know, route by route, you know, you might have 40% market share, 70% market share. So, Well, your um, article judge- sent a chill to my heart because I live in New York City. And you said that if Jet this JetBlue merger goes up, JetBlue is the biggest carrier in this market, uh, in right. the New York market, and so that means soaring airfares. Not good. And you know there was a there was a sort of smoking gun, a leaked not a leaked document, but a document that JetBlue inadvertently submitted to the court and included an internal memo that said this was one JetBlue pers- uh, executive to another uh, estimated that post merger fares on spirit routes would go up from 24 to 40%. Now that is chilling as well. Oh. And it also, it also um, is a direct contradiction of what JetBlue had been saying publicly. So, you know, they've backpedaled and they've called in, you know, public relations experts and they've said, no, 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 that's not what we meant. But the bottom line is, you know, they've already signaled what's going to happen. JetBlue is not the, the same cost level as spirit and they do not have the same fare, you know, levels. And so if this, if this were to go through, you can guarantee fares will go up on every single spirit route. One final question. If the judge rules in favor of JetBlue and allows this merger to go forward, can the DOJ take it to a higher court or is this over? 
There's a, this is a really interesting question because, you know, there's, there's uh, from my understanding, there's always the, the possibility of, you know, of challenging it and taking it higher. But more interesting is that I mentioned before that uh, Secretary Buttigieg, on the day that the DOJ filed the suit, went on TV and said that the DOT is also concerned. And that sort of has gone to a back burner because the DOT has been, you know, has basically said, well, this is the DOJ's fight and we're, we're, we're ceding our authority to them at this point. But there is the option of the DOT also getting involved. And again, we're not talking about overstepping bounds. We're talking about using dormant powers that, that the DOT has. And the DOT does have authority. We, we internally, some of our lawyers at Economic Liberties have looked at it. I'm not a lawyer, so uh-huh. I can't cite you chapter and verse. Sure. But there is authority that DOT has, which it hasn't used forever, uh, basically to look at competition issues. So this is a very interesting time we're in. Yeah. Um, uh, nothing would, like I've ever seen. And would it be helpful for the public to weigh in on this, to write to the DOT and the DOJ and say... Absolutely. Yeah. And also to Judge Young, you know. Oh. Uh, he, he's going to be, you know... Really? Um, I've never heard yes. of that line. Well, I mean, you know, for those that, that have the... Um, that have the authority, you know, they're filing amicus briefs and things like that. You know, if you, if you know how to go about that process, it's not, it's not easy, but um, you know, uh, there are organizations that are, um, you know, reaching out at this time. Wow. Well, fascinating. And if this conversation, I this conversation was rich and complex. And if, if it went by a little too fast, you can read everything that, that Bill has to say on this matter at fromers.com. So, so please visit us there and, Thank you so much, Bill. Always a pleasure. Oh, absolutely, Pauline. Thrilled to be working with you. Welcome, Nikki Vargas, to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me, Pauline. I'm really excited. Well, I wanted to have you on because your new travel memoir, Call You When I Land, is is very unique. So many travel memoirs focus entirely on the travels, but I felt like this book was more about the intersection between your regular life and your time on the road. Is that why you gave it the title you did? Absolutely. I love the title Call You When I Land because it means two different things to me. Not only does it mean uh, the tradition of promising loved ones that you'll be in touch once you reach your destination, but also because this book touches so much on this very turbulent period in my life, which was my 20s, it's also this promise to my loved ones that I'll call you when I figure everything out, when I land not only on the job that I hope to have and the life that I hope to have, but also when I land on the woman I'm meant to become. So it kind of has that double meaning there. Right, right. And it does start at a turbulent, dramatic point. I think we can give this away. You're in a gorgeous, natural setting, and it it causes you to have an epiphany about your life, but it it's not a happy epiphany. <laughs> I usually I think when when travel writers set up you know the beauty of a place and they have an epiphany and it's it's usually oh you know life is about sharing or it's 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 something it, it, it's something very positive. But you were in this gorgeous setting and you realized. 
that you were about to make a great mistake, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing about that moment is that I was about, at that point in time, I was a week away from getting married. And it was one of those big kind of New York weddings. And I had really not taken the time to understand the decision that I was about to make and how much that decision could define my adult life to come. And I was avoiding this major decision in all the wrong ways. And a lot of that was rooted in travel, using travel as a means of avoidance, using it as a means of running away. And when I get to Iguazu National Park in Argentina, I have this sort of meeting with myself where I finally literally scream into the trees, I don't want to get married. And that decision sets in motion a series of events that really redefine my life and set the foundation for my adult life to come. Right. And it, it, it means that not only do you not get married, and I got to tell you, the moment when you talk about your mother working on the shoes, putting uh, rhinestones one by one into your wedding shoes, that just was a heartbreaker for me. <laughs> That must have been such a hard, hard time. Yeah, it was, you know, the thing about writing the book is that, well, thankfully, you know, a lot of the frustration and pain and drama has been minimized now with time. And these events took place more than 10 years ago. But, you know, my mom was very nervous about the book, rightly so, hmm. because it was drudging up all of this drama. And a lot of these wounds were still open in some regard that I don't think I had realized until I really sat down and was writing it and revisiting some of these memories with family. Hmm. But I have to say, I did just get married this past September. Oh. And there was something really beautiful about writing about this time period and how wrong it felt and how hmm. stressful it was. Now, at a moment in the present where I'm going through wedding planning and it feels right and it feels wonderful and I'm doing it with my mom and we're loving every minute of it. So there was a really beautiful kind of like just agreeable symmetry there. Right. So you were not only in the wrong relationship, but you wanted to make travel and writing about travel your life. And that's the other part of this journey. And it's been a bumpy one because as anybody in media knows, it's been a very, very bumpy time. You you talk at one point about going on a trip with a whole bunch of influencers. <laughs> and that, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody write as honestly about what that's like. Uh, it's not something, you know, I was on radio for 20 years and my radio license did not allow me to take free trips. So it's mm -hmm. not something I've done, but you Talk about the influencers you're in Borneo. Yeah. And it's you say that you're like a flock of flamingos. Yeah. Why is that? Tell tell our listeners what that kind of trip is like. I thought I thought your description was just hilarious. You know, there's this uh there's this gif that I love. And the gif is a flock of pink flamingos moving across a salt flat in unison, and their heads are just kind of like turning left and right. And that's what came to mind when I was writing that, like this idea that like you're traveling with a group of strangers and we're all tasked with capturing this trip in whatever regard we need to, whether you're a food influencer or solo travel or whatever it is. 
everyone is trying to get that trip and capture it through a specific lens. And so anywhere we would go, we would just immediately take up space and be moving around with our selfie sticks and our phones and everything and this <laughs> idle chatter. And, uh, and I just, that image of the flamingos came to mind. But, you know, the thing about it is that a lot of, you know, one of the things I wanted to address in the memoir was how I was able to travel at that age. Sure. Because, you know, at the end of the day, this book is very honest about not only my life and and the ebbs and flows of romance and the ebbs and flows of career, but also the financial aspect of it. And so I wanted to demystify press trips and our industry a little bit and how I was able to go to places like Borneo or Argentina or whatever it was at this time when I'm living in New York and I'm working an entry-level job and I'm trying to break into the industry and my blog isn't making any money. And the answer was press trips. Yeah. And at first it was these influencer trips because I was working in or I was working on my blog and I was trying to get a foot in the industry. And then once I became an on-staff editor, then it became press trips with other journalists. Right. But that Borneo chapter, you know, I really wanted to not only capture what it's like to go to these amazing places with a group of complete strangers and how we're all just siphoning off content for our respective blogs, but also how much it didn't fit for me. And it's not to knock it for people that it does fit for, but I really realized in Borneo on that trip that I, I'm I'm not good at that. You know, I'm not good at taking selfies. I'm inherently so awkward <laughs> in filming myself and photographing myself. And that it really, as blogging was moving towards aesthetic appeal, I was really rooted in words. And that really set me on course to try to become an on-staff editor. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, and I think there is a big difference in the book between when you're talking about your work as an editor writer and as a blogger. I mean, what stuck out to me was you have a luxury influencer who's constantly demanding champagne <laughs> for her photos in the middle of Borneo. Yeah, I, I have to say, it's, it, yeah, there are certainly some funny moments. And uh, I, uh, I did hold back a little bit, <laughs> but I also, it's just, you know, that's the thing though, like that, the, the lesson really of that chapter that I hope that readers take away is that it's the imperfections of travel that really make it special. And that when there's such a focus on curation, you make travel feel inaccessible and you mm-hmm. make it feel like this thing that's meant to be perfect. And ultimately in Borneo, it was a mess. You know, we were all unshowered and three days on this riverboat sleeping on our rolled up jeans and I get (laughs) lost in Borneo. But then when you see the content later, it looks like we're on a vogue spread of what Borneo should be like in your dreams. And there's such a, there's such a a contrast there that felt unsettling to me. And I think that's also what pushed me more into writing about travel because there's a real honesty there when you write about travel versus when you try to portray it. Definitely, definitely. And your love for travel comes shining through this book. I love your your chapter on Vietnam and what an extraordinary place that is. What what would you tell our, our readers about why they should go to Vietnam? Oh my gosh. I mean, the food alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, it's when I went, I had this map of Hanoi 
And everywhere I went and ate and whatever it was, I would mark it down on this map and write notes. And I didn't do this for any particular reason. Not that I thought I would write a story and I definitely didn't think I would write a book about it, but I just did it for the love of what I was experiencing. And to move through Vietnam and to move through Hanoi, it just, it was so such a rich sensory experience from the sights to the sounds, to the smells, to the taste. It was such a kaleidoscopic, just sensory experience. I, I don't know how else to describe it. I guess I describe it in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, what, what, what uh, hit me was you are insisting that you have to have a banh mi sandwich in mm. Vietnam to your uh, I'm assuming now husband. Yes. And uh, instead, you kind of wander up to a street stall where you just get to eat what that person is cooking. And it's exquisite. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, when I wrote the Vietnam chapter, I want and a lot of the book is kind of trying to strike this balance of being in the present and being in this beautiful destination and experiencing that. But as you're moving through it, I'm also revealing elements of my life. And, and in this case, the relationship with my now husband. Yeah. And that sort of push pull between I want to experience a banh mi sandwich because it's so emblematic of Vietnamese cuisine and him sort of just following his, you know, his nose to whatever restaurant and that ending up being the best meal of the trip, I think yeah. is really reflective of our relationship. And this idea of I'm trying to kind of live up to this almost cliche idealized version of things. And he's like, let's just go with the flow and discover. Yeah. And I feel like that was beautifully represented by the simple act of debating what to eat in Hanoi. <laughs> yeah. And, and, Julia Louis-Dreyfus right now has a wonderful podcast, and she recently had Ruth Reichel on. And mm. Ruth Reichel was talking about writing about food and how difficult that is because you have no way of knowing what, say, lemony tastes like to another person or what spicy means to another person. And, and you describe that meal that you finally had as the best of your life, but it was the best because you had it with your then boyfriend in this joyous way. And it kind of reminded me of, of her saying the best way to write about food is how you, how it makes you feel. I think because, that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's a, that's very, very true. And I honestly, I've never thought about it before, but you're absolutely right. And I think it's the same way for travel descriptions as a whole, you know, the way yeah. that we experience things individually, it can sometimes, I mean, it differs from how our readers experience those things. And and in this case, to write about the emotions and to write about how it felt for me and to hope that that can convey itself on the page enough that it transports readers is what I tried to sort of carry through uh, throughout the whole book. Yeah, absolutely. And one other strand of the book that I want to hit on before we finish uh, was that the travel is part of your DNA because you, your parents came from Colombia and you mm. spent time there as a small child. And there, there are mysteries in your background yeah. that I don't want to give away. Uh, <laughs> but for somebody traveling to Colombia who doesn't have your background, just what I'm curious, what would be your advice to them? What should they look for? Where should they go? 
Oh my gosh, I could. This could be its own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I have so much love for Colombia. Um, I love Cartagena, and mm. uh, and it's okay to give to tease a little bit in the book. You know, when I Colombia plays a big part in the book, yeah. not only because it's where I was born in Bogota, and there's a real story arc of trying to reconnect to my heritage to try to understand what it means to be Colombian. But a lot of that happens in the context of trying to unravel this uh, mysterious murder that had happened within my family and that had haunted me since I was a little girl. And that finds me going back to Colombia, going to Bogota, going to Cartagena. And for readers going to Colombia, I have to say Cartagena to me is so emblematic of Colombia, not only its diversity, but its culture and its music and yeah. its vibrancy, I think that Cartagena captures the essence of Colombia in such a beautiful way. And it is one of my top destinations. And anytime someone asks for a recommendation, I say go to Cartagena. Yeah, and no, it's to me, Cartagena is all about the music. You mm. can't walk a block without hearing different, wonderful music blasting out of a store or people in a park dancing or, and the dancing, it happens all day long there. At least yeah. it did when I was there. I mean, it's, to me, it felt like one of the most joyous places I've ever been to. Oh, I love that. That's such a great way to put it. It's absolutely brimming with joy. And when I write about going to Cartagena for the first time as an adult, and trying to connect to my Colombian heritage, I try to capture that in almost a frenzied sort of way that mm. I'm moving through the city and I'm just very much like the Hanoi chapter, just kind of inhaling everything and just, you know, just overwhelmed in the best way possible by the colors and the flavors and the music and the sights and everything. And, and, Cartagena just captures Colombia's essence perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a delightful book. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to talk about Call You When I Land. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. If you're out buying gifts, as I said last week, I hope you'll consider buying a Fromer's Guidebook for your family and friends. We think it's a great way to announce that you're going to take them on a splendid trip in the new year. And really, what better gift is there than that? I can't think of one. So thanks for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching cable.